each painfully long minute unlocking, the tumbly jumbly can't close your eyes feeling, what will it be? When will it be? Oh, the anticipation, the watching, the wishing and waiting to let the wiggles and giggles and goosebumps go, to find, to see, to finally know. What will it be? When will it be? Oh, the expectation, the what-ifs, the oh-mys fairly shaking, longing for this night's joy all year, that moment of hope so very near. Oh, but would they, could they, imagine a gift so great, a gift that compelled the whole world to wait? When a heavenly Father gave all mankind His Son, the one love divine. The magic of Christmas is more brilliant, you see, than a bag or a box tucked under a tree. The true love of Christmas really began when holy God became holy man. Joseph, it's time. He's here. So that night, some 2,000 years ago, is this night, and we gather together to remember that night. So we just want to welcome you all here tonight, especially those of you visiting for the first time. Uh, we don't know all of your stories. It's quite probable that uh, gathered tonight, some of you maybe have never been inside a church, except maybe for a wedding or some uh, family occasion. Maybe some of you haven't been inside a church building for many, many years. Whatever the, the reason, whatever your story, whatever brought you here tonight, we're just thrilled that you're here and uh, you're our guests and we say welcome to you. Um, we know that you've got options and uh, we think that you chose a really great option to be here for Christmas Eve. And we just want to unpack a little bit of, of the story behind Christmas. Just drop anchor and, and shine the spotlight on what the, the real deal is amidst all the noise, the white noise uh, that we can experience around Christmas time. When I was in my early 20s, I, I ran, uh, I managed corporate gyms in various locations around the city. And some of my buddies, some of my, uh, were studying at uni. And as uni students do, uh, my buddies like to freeload. And so they'd come to my gyms every now and then and they'd work out um, at company expense. And uh, we'd just hang out together. And then every now and then I might join them at one of their gyms at their campus. And I remember this particular time was a, sort of an early afternoon. Uh, I went and hung out with one of my buddies down at Murdoch Uni, and he was a member of the gym there, and we decided, you know, we're going to do a weights workout, about an hour, and a pretty sort of just a standard weights workout, uh, two boys trying to get bigger, impress the girls, that sort of, sort of stuff, and uh, the way the workout went, you know, one person would do a set of, of uh, you know, whatever the exercise was, bench press, and then you'd, you'd get, stand up and the other person would take their place and do their bench press and you'd sort of alternate and do a few sets of that and move on. We knew the deal and just for whatever reason, I, I honestly can't remember the on-ramp for this, but we decided, my buddy and I, that this particular day, that we would introduce a rule to this workout that before you were permitted to do your set of whatever the exercise was, you had to quote a line from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. That was the rule. And if you couldn't quote a line, you didn't get to do the exercise. And uh, so we got started on just the, the basic ones, you know, I'll be back. You know, everyone knows that one. There was no sort of special bonus there. And we went on and on and 
Uh, then we started to get in some of the more obscure ones. You know, I remember the scene where uh, Arnie was being chased by this guy named Bennett. And uh, Arnie, uh, the, Bennett was closing in on him. Arnie ripped this, uh, this pipe from this kind of steam unit, ripped this pipe and threw it like a spear. It went straight into Bennett's heart, lifted him off the ground and pinned him into this uh, steam uh, chamber behind him. And steam started coming out of the pipe. And Arnie, the, the camera pinned, uh, panned back to Arnie. And Arnie said, let off some steam, Bennett. Just... It's just brilliant. I mean, that's like Oscar-winning script writing there. And, uh, well, you know, Arnie's richer than probably all of us combined, so it seems to have worked okay for him. Um, and I remember there's uh, one of the sort of the more well-known lines, the movie Kindergarten Cop, where uh, big, big Arnie masquerades as a, as a kindergarten teacher to go in and try to find out this thing that's going on. And on, he, on his first day, he sits on one of the little stools and he gets the little kitties around him and he sits to the kitties. He'd been practicing this. He looked at them all and he says, who's your daddy and what does he do? And we wanted tonight, and we've been doing this for the whole month of December, to actually ask the question, who is Jesus? And what does he do? Because unless we actually have a little bit of an understanding of who he is, then Christmas is just another family occasion. It's just another, you know, meal together. But if we can actually get a a, a kind of a look behind the curtain of who he is, we'll get a better understanding of of what Christmas is all about and why it's such a big deal for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Um, You ever found yourself walking around in the dark, maybe, you know, early in the morning, nature comes knocking, three o'clock. I remember when I was about six years old, that happened to me, it happened to me more than once, but on this particular occasion, I'm six, about six years old, and I needed to go and pee, so, you know, I'm get up all bleary-eyed, the house is pitch black, I don't have the energy to switch light uh, switches on, and I just went in to where the toilet area is in our house, and the toilet area is just next to the laundry, in my parents' house, still is, and I just went in, lifted the lid, and, and I just peed, and, you know, closed the lid, and went back to bed. Uh, it wasn't until the next morning that my mother informed me that I had indeed peed on the laundry, in the laundry basket, but, you know, it was there to be washed, so, uh, you know, just a little bit more bang for your buck, I thought. It's hard enough walking around in your own home. Maybe, you know, after a while you get a bit familiar, you get a bit cocky. But have you ever been in a situation where you've been maybe in a hotel room or a, or a holiday home that you've rented and you've actually had a similar experience early in the morning, pitch black, you've had to walk around? You know, I'd be thinking between the corners of, of, uh, of coffee tables and the ends of timber beds, probably, you know, they're re- representative of about 50% of the world's F-bombs dropped every year when people knock their toes or knees against such fixtures. Uh, this idea of you know, just walking around in the dark, it's not very appealing. But as much as we can walk around in the dark in physical environments, oftentimes we can walk around in the dark in, in, in seasons and situations and circumstances in life. Maybe you've found yourself walking around in the dark before. Maybe a relationship has, has suddenly ended, something you, you didn't wish, uh, you couldn't prevent, you couldn't repair at that moment, and you felt that... that that you'd lost some control, that you're walking around in the dark. Maybe you lost a job. Some got fired, got made redundant, faced with the uncertainty of how you're going to pay the bills, how you're going to feed your children. And in that moment, in that time, and as the days and maybe months continue to tick away, feeling like you were walking around 
in the dark. It's not great. We don't like it. And I think sometimes feeling helpless is one of the most painful and frustrating feelings that we can ever go through. The good news is, that's where Jesus comes in. The story recorded of Jesus 2,000 years ago when he walked the earth as a man. This particular day, Jesus was gathered in the temple in the, in the town uh, that he was in at that time. And he was gathered in the temple, teaching his followers and, and some of the sort of broader community, just teaching them some stuff about God, about God's kingdom. And the religious leaders of the day kind of barged into the temple, caught Jesus and everyone unaware, and they, were, and they were carrying with them a woman that they'd caught in the act of adultery, caught having sex with a man that wasn't her husband. And they brought this woman in, and they threw her before Jesus. And they said to him, well, like, I'll let this video tell the story. Of all lips. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered round him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher! This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up. Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up. Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir. Well then, I do not condemn you either. Go. 
Watson again. The, um, the writer of this story was a guy named John, who was one of Jesus' closest followers. And uh, what's interesting is John didn't actually bother to explain what Jesus was writing in the sand. Wouldn't you have wanted to know? Because it's like it's actually a pretty substantial part of the story. Jesus paused to write in the sand. What was all that about? Well, let me just give you a little look behind the curtain. Many experts, this is just like, it's actually not the point, but it's pretty cool. Many experts have uh, deliberated that possibly Jesus at that moment was writing in the sand the list of the sins that the religious leaders, the accusers of this woman, have actually committed in their life. It might, it might not be the case, and it's, you know, it's not the most important part of the story, but it's pretty cool. Sick him, Jesus. Grrr, I love it. But there's this situation where the religious leaders... Had, had ferreted out this woman, brought her into the temple, you know, accusing her in front of Jesus, in front of Jesus' followers, in front of the, the crowd that was gathered, of, of having sexual relations with a man that wasn't her husband, which the law at the time said that she must actually be stoned to death, a form of capital punishment. Later on, we would, we would not do that. We would hang people. We would put them before the firing squad. In those days, the same outcome, it was a death sentence. She'd actually been brought to Jesus, and it was considered fait accompli. They were actually just throwing her in front of Jesus to trip him up, and that's a, a story for another day. They shone the light on her, to accuse her, to bring her life to an end, to make death her outcome. And then Jesus challenged them. Those of you that have never sinned, you get to cast the first stone. And one by one, they dropped their stones because they knew that they were guilty, maybe not of that sin, but of, of a list of their own sins. And they walked away, tails between their legs. With this woman still there, she had just been pardoned. She had just escaped a certain death, purely based on the words of Jesus. And then Jesus walked over to her and he shone the light on her. He wanted to shine, though, a different light. He wanted to shine a light on her that said, Sweetheart, yeah, it's not good that you sinned. And you heard he eventually said to her, I want you to go and, and sin no more. Don't sin again. You know. But Jesus actually revealed something of himself in that moment because actually after he, he pardoned her and after she'd made her way out with his followers still gathered around him and, and, and probably some remnants still in the temple who were pretty impressed by what just happened, the very next thing he said was simply this, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Who is Jesus and what does he do? He is the light of the world. The good thing is, the great thing is, the great news is that we don't actually have to hide from that light. See, when we're in darkness and feeling helpless, especially when it's been our own doing, especially when it's been decisions we've made, circumstances that we've brought ourselves into, maybe a corner that we've painted ourselves in and and can't see a way out, Jesus, he actually wants to shine the light on us. But he wants to shine the light with a very different motive than the light that was shone by the religious leaders. He doesn't want to shine the light of accusation. He doesn't want to shine the light of limitation. He doesn't want to shine the light of death. Unto us, he wants to actually shine a light that will show us a way out of our darkness, a light that will actually empower us to move on. And he will said, he promises, if you follow me, you'll not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's describing himself. He's saying, I'm Jesus, the light of the world. And what do I do? I will lead you. I will lead you every day in every way. It doesn't mean you'll have a life that's pain free. But I will lead you. And you don't have to fear me because when I shine my light on you, it's not to make you feel weak, inadequate, guilty, bound up, limited. It's to liberate you. It's to give you a freedom. It's to give you this life beyond your own capacity to release you from a bondage. No matter what, even that woman, she chose to be in bed with that man, wherever he ended up. You know, she was guilty of a crime, of a sin, of her own doing. It's not like, you know, she was just walking past the bed, fell in, oh my gosh, all of a sudden she's having sex. Jesus knew that. He knew, he knew she wasn't the victim. She wasn't some, you know, divine conspiracy. And No, but, but even then, guilty as guilty as guilty as guilty could be, he shone a light on her. His purpose, his motivation was love was freedom, was life, was restoration, was to say, sweetheart, yeah, I want you to go and sin no more, but you know what? If you keep following me, I'll help you with that. I'll empower you with that. And the question we're asking tonight is not just for you, for all of us, not just whether you can accept that Jesus is the light of the world, but whether you be willing to open up and make him the light of your world. The first video we ran kind of the narrative, the storybook. That video finished with the, the reminder or the, or the information maybe for some of you that, that we're here to celebrate a gift that's already been given. This gift of a baby, this gift that went on, this baby that went on to actually claim that he was the son of God, that he'd come down from heaven and became a man and dwelt with us. That's the gift. That's the ultimate gift. That's the best gift. And when he says, I'm the light of the world, he also wants us to wrestle with the question whether we're willing to make him the light of our world, whether we're willing to do what he said, to actually follow him. And if we follow him, we'll never have to walk in darkness. And our team has set things up tonight, prepared things for you to be here, if you've, especially if you've never made that decision, to give you that opportunity. To consider that question, will you make Jesus the light of your world this Christmas? The gift that's already before you is more than just the nativity scene. It's more than just any other baby. Babies get born every day. We don't stop 
hundreds of millions of people around the world every year to celebrate them. But this one baby, we do because there's something different about this one baby. And this one baby went on to say, I'm the light of the world. Will you open your heart and make me the light of your world? Some of you maybe have never made that decision to make Jesus the light of your world. We're going to give you that opportunity right here, right now, before you leave tonight. Many of you have made that decision. I know your stories personally, but some of you, maybe you haven't made that decision. Well, here's your opportunity to say, yeah, I'm willing to actually take that gift, that gift of this baby, that gift that, that became the light of the world. I'm willing to open my heart. I want to make him the light of my world. For those of you that need to make that decision, and this is your night to make that, all I want you to do in a moment is you just slip your hand up. Slip your hand up and say, yeah, Jesus, that's me. I want you to become the light of my world tonight, this Christmas Eve, 2013. When I see your hand, you can put it down. So let me just look right now. For those of you that need to make that decision, make Jesus the light of your world, just slip your hand up. Real quickly, when I see your hand, you can put it down. We're not going to... Take too long over this, but we don't want to kind of, we want to give you the opportunity. And right now, this is that opportunity. If you've never made the decision to make Jesus the light of your world, just slip your hand up. You say, yeah, that's my decision right here, right now. You know, Mark, I need to do that. When I see your hand, you can put it down. Then we're going to pray. All right, tomorrow's Christmas. Pretty sure most of you knew that already. Yes, good. Um, the very next day, in addition to the Sydney to Hobart yacht race starting and the MCG Boxing Day test starting, the Nicorette, Nicorette, You Can Beat the Cigarette commercials will also be starting, <laughs> along with the latest detox diet, and the list goes on. Of all of these things that now that Christmas is in our rearview mirror, we start looking at the new year, at New Year's resolutions. And, uh, I mean, they've already been coming out. Blogs have been popping up on my iPad every single day, how you can keep your New Year's resolutions next year, make next year better than this year, and all that good stuff. Um, So I want to give you a little bit of a a preview of a conversation we're going to kickstart in January along the very same lines, for the very same reasons, but actually hoping to cast some new light, helping you change the way you change. We'd really love you to join us in January. Here's a little bit of a sneak preview. Okay, time to make another New Year's resolution. Resolution. Res-o-lose. Yeah, lose is right. Why even bother this year? Every year, I tell myself I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to make some changes in my life. This year is going to be different. And every year, I feel like I'm in the exact same place I started last year. Change seems hopeless. Sound familiar? Unfortunately, we often face the beginning of a new year setting ourselves up for failure. We make a list of all the projects we're going to tackle, all the goals we want to achieve. We tell ourselves we're going to try harder this year. We start looking at what the world calls successful and talking about all the things that we would do. This is the way to approach it, right? Wrong. We need to reframe the way we approach change. This year, we're going to play by a new set of rules. 
Five facts that change the way we change. Welcome to the new rules of resolution. 